more than anything else, getting comfortable with these deals is really just getting comfortable with the idea that the business will survive and will come back on the other side of the pandemic. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We're living in a surreal life right now, but our team of nearly 100 analysts continues to publish content to our more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. I am Christopher Snow, the moderator, and I am here with Jim Dunn, our senior consumer analyst. Hi, Jim. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about hospitality and travel. They're the corporate equivalent of patient zero in the COVID-19 crisis. Airline passenger traffic is down more than 90%. Hotel occupancy globally is below 15%, and cruise ships are largely sitting fallow. Well, let's start with the big question. How do you think about the next 12 to 18 months and the emergence from the current crisis? Yeah, that's certainly the key question on everybody's minds, investors and public leaders alike. We've broken the outlook into two phases. First, the pandemic phase, and then what we're expecting to be a recessionary phase thereafter. As it relates to the near term, our base case estimate assumes curtailed travel through June with a gradual increase over 3Q20 back to something like 50% capacity at the end of the quarter. Then further improvement in the fourth quarter, getting back to something like 75% at year end. And then as we enter into 2021, seeing more of a gradual recovery. As we enter that point in early 2021, we think operating trends will more closely track those of the great financial crisis, which is important in considering credit metrics and fallen angel risk for a sector like the hotel industry in particular, where we expect recessionary impacts to continue to weigh on corporate and group demand and think that it could take some time for leisure demand to fill the gap as it did in the last downturn. For cruise, it might take a bit longer, but that's a very resilient industry in regards to demand. And we expect that business to come back in 2021, but it's most likely going to take a while to get back to pre-pandemic earnings levels. And for crews, that's likely going to be 2022 at the earliest. Now, this past week, Expedia is the latest to come to market with some creative financing to pledge the free cash flow gap from the virus that's really zeroed out the travel business for at least the period right now. Could you share your thoughts on that deal? Expedia was interesting for a couple of reasons. First, they split a five-year tranche across a non-callable and a callable bucket with the callable notes pricing 75 basis points wide to the non-calls that they split between non-callable and callable notes within the same maturity bucket. It was something that we don't typically see. They also tapped preferred equity from private equity shops Apollo and Silver Lake, which was the first that we've seen of that within our coverage. Worth noting that the dividend on the preferred shares is 9.5% to start, which is high. And then there's step-ups built in over time. And it's also worth noting that those PE shops purchased warrants alongside their preferred shares. As it relates to the unsecureds themselves, we actually took a favorable view of those notes because we see good value relative to a name like Hilton, which is a mid-double B credit. Now, at issuance, Expedia is still a low triple B name, but we see fallen angel risk high there in the market, certainly pricing that in to the degree that those notes priced wide to Hilton. So the value that we see is that they're pricing in the downgrade risk and that they're wide to a Hilton. And with liquidity short up in the near term, we see good long-term value there. In particular, relative to the existing curve, 
We like the new notes because they feature coupon steps that come into play in the event of ratings downgrades. We've seen coupon steps coming about more and more in new issue deals more recently, whereas pre-pandemic, they had been pretty scarce. Yeah, thanks. I think we're often asked by investors, how do you price call protection in a certain series of bonds? And it's helpful in this case to actually see what it is, which happened to be 75 bips. Over the last month, we've seen issuance across the board. We've seen Hyatt, Hilton, Booking, Carnival, Royal, Marriott. We've seen some unsecured, some secureds, converts, preferreds is in this deal, and then some equity as well. How do you think issuers are making decisions about the types of financing that they want to utilize? Yeah, more than anything else, the decision-making process, we think, is, is rooted in the number one priority, which is shoring up liquidity. To say the least, the name of the game is liquidity in the near term. And there's been more obvious examples, like with the cruise operator, like Carnival, for example, where we saw them issue both secured, converts, and equity. And that decision-making process was driven primarily by their need to shore up liquidity in the near term. We've seen in some instances, uh, Treasury wait until conditions improve before issuing, but those are names that have the flexibility to do so. During the peak of the crisis in March, it was really only the highest quality consumer staple names that we saw issuing in the consumer space. In some instances, we saw companies like, for example, a Marriott, where we thought when they would have to amend a credit agreement, they might have to utilize some secured debt. But what we're finding is that the unsecured market is still open to these credits and it's helping the Hiltons of the world and Expedia to a degree utilize unsecured debt without having to tap into the limited amount of secured debt that is allowed by the indentures of their bonds. So we're seeing many companies amend credit agreements. We've seen Hilton, Expedia, Marriott all receive temporary waivers to avoid tripping financial covenants, which was most likely to happen in 2020, given the dramatic fall off in, in the EBITDA base. So we're seeing decisions made for several reasons. It's liquidity, it's avoid tripping maintenance covenants, and it's to get flexibility to survive the pandemic. And so it's really survival and driving the decision-making process. And most often that's rooted in liquidity. And then in some other instances, avoiding triggering maintenance covenants in the bond docs or the credit agreements. You've mentioned structure as it pertains to the, the issuers. Yeah, I'd like to sort of speak to the other side of the equation, which is investors, and to think about how they're getting comfortable with these deals. You know, if you look at one of the more meaningful metrics that the issuers are providing these days is what their monthly cash burn rate is when you're seeing no revenue generation. How are investors squaring that metric with lending to companies in this environment? Yeah, really more than anything else, getting comfortable with these deals is really just getting comfortable with the idea that the business will survive and will come back on the other side of the pandemic. And it's sort of a binary view because it's in some of these examples, you might call it an apocalyptic view if you, you don't expect certain businesses to come back. We are of the view that demand will come back for the cruise and hotel industry. So that's the first step that investors are taking. And then once they make that decision, the next step is, well, how do you get through the pandemic? So it's really about making sure the company has enough liquidity in place to weather the near-term impact of travel restrictions and suspended cruises and such. So 
to get comfortable in the name, we're seeing investors first tell themselves and then get comfortable with the idea that this business will come back, which is our view, and we do think it will come back, and then making sure liquidity is sufficient to get through 2020. So those, I think, are the two main considerations that are being done. And then, of course, beyond that, there's compensation considerations. So we're seeing corporate credit curves being repriced. And for some of these secured deals, well, the one secured deal we saw from Carnival Cruise, for example, we saw an 11.5% coupon. So there's a financial compensation component as well that helps you get comfortable with it. Yeah, on that Carnival deal, you know, they ultimately priced, I think it was maybe $4 billion of bonds just in that secured piece. Uh, it was five years. Uh, and this was for an investment-grade company. Uh, so this is obviously the vanguard of companies needing to come to the market to solve liquidity challenges and actually finding a receptive investor base, albeit at the right price. You know, the bonds have traded well, but at 104, they're yielding maybe just under 10%. So investors are not pricing in the all-clear. There's a lot from the menu that have come out in terms of structure, tenor, coupons. What are the deals that you've liked from the recent issuance? Well, we can start really with that Carnival deal, which within the capital structure, we like the secureds. The reasons uh, that we like them, and to start with, we expect the business to come back in 2021, and we think liquidity is now enough to get through 2020. But to think about some downside scenarios, we like the prospects of recovery for the secureds in more of a worst case scenario of a restructuring, even when you're considering maybe any additional secured debt that might have to come into the structure. So you mentioned there's $4 billion of secured notes. Carnival did uh, over $5 billion of EBITDA in 2019. And even under some very draconian EBITDA reduction scenarios in 2021, it's tough to envision a scenario where there's not adequate coverage for those notes. This is a business that was growing sales in low to mid single digits before the outbreak. So we aren't really looking at a secular decline model that you often see in typical distress scenarios. EV multiples were over eight times last year, and we think it's reasonable to expect a higher recovery multiple than your typical five to six times multiple, and it's probably closer to seven times, we think. So even if EBITDA were halved, from 2019 levels in 2021 in the two to three billion dollar range, you're looking at potentially 14 plus billion dollars of value in that scenario, which leaves considerable room for covering the existing secures and even when layering in additional secure debt. Of course, that's all predicated on the view that sailing will return, but that's entirely our expectation. In terms of some other deals that we've seen, we've liked early on, we took a favorable view of the front end of Marriott's curve. And then they came to market with some additional unsecured paper that made us get more comfortable with the liquidity prospects for 2020 and beyond. And with the curve sort of repricing closer to high yield levels, closer to a Hilton, for example, we took a more constructive view on that and we see good long-term value there. So uh, that's a recent new issuance that we've liked. And we've also liked the recent new issue by Expedia, which I mentioned. Again, with liquidity short up and spreads wide to Hill, and we see good long-term value there. In terms of some higher quality issuers within the OTA space, Booking has historically been the higher quality between Booking and Expedia, the higher quality issuer. And they came to market as well. And we like those notes, which we potentially see as staying investment grade through the pandemic. And for the names you mentioned, it's often a, or in situations like these, it's often a self-fulfilling prophecy where just by your ability to come to market, 
uh, is able to get comfortable with the idea that they will come to market. So, you know, particularly as these companies are dealing with whether or not they can or cannot, one of the questions that's come up quite often is the issue of government support. And this was particularly in play early on with the government response for the cruise lines companies and whether or not they would be able to take advantage of some of these programs that have come out. Unlike the airlines, the hoteliers, the OTAs, and the cruise companies don't really have as much direct access from the CARES Act. Are the leisure names, in your view, really left to come up with their own devices to plug these earnings holes that you've spoken about? In a sense, yes. Cruise companies, definitely, because they're the most obviously excluded from the CARES Act because of the fact that they're not domiciled in the U.S. and can't obviously demonstrate that the majority of their employees are, are U.S.-based. So that's the most obvious example. And then when you shift to the hotel sector and the operators, for example, there's less, there's no direct support in the sense that it's not written into the law as it is for the airline industry. However, within some of the discretionary funds, we've seen examples of some individual hotel owners benefiting from some of the programs. And so perhaps that's a way that there's implicit support to the overall industry and to the degree that the relationship benefits from the owner surviving, that would benefit the operators. But for the most part, it is our expectation that something like the hotel operator space, is it's they're up to their own devices to shore up liquidity. That raised a lot of concern in the market in March when it was unclear if that liquidity would be available. But importantly, the markets have opened up and financing remains available to the space. We have another constituency here, which is the rating agencies. Uh, they've, of course, taken some actions. Uh, they've downgraded a number of these names, and there's likely more downgrades to come. It seems like they've shifted their focus alongside the investors from the immediate damage to you know, what a 2021 or 2022 steady state pro forma profile might look like. After all this is said and done, you know, do you think any of the names in the hospitality coverage are going to remain investment grade? Well, I mentioned booking holdings. That's, in our view, the most likely of the names to stay investment grade. And it's really reflective of the strong liquidity position they were in before the pandemic, their ability to cut costs given a largely variable cost base, and then what we expect to be perhaps an earlier recovery than some of the hotel names because of the specific characteristics of the business that do well in the recovery period. Among more of the hotel-specific names, you can maybe look at a company like Host Hotels. Obviously, there's owned exposure there. There's fallen angel risk is high, but Unlike going into the last downturn, again, this is a name where the balance sheet was in a strong starting position before the pandemic. Now, that speaks to management taking prudent steps in the late stages of the lodging cycle. Obviously, they weren't planning for a pandemic, but they had a better starting position than some of the other names in the space. So that would be another one you might consider. But apart from booking holdings, we still characterize fallen angel risk as high across the space. Well, let's shift to the outlook. Right now, there's the state-by-state debates about when are we going to open? You know, what does reopening look like for the economy? Now, obviously, we're on the precipice of earnings season right now, so we're going to get some more color from the management teams about how they're thinking about walking through the next steps. Has there been any commentary that's emerged, whether from the peers when they've done the new issuance or just through other channels, and how they've spoken about how they think they're going to respond to the beginnings of policy relaxations, and then, of course, the social response as the virus develops? There's been some, nothing really specific in terms of hard dates. But here's what we think is reasonable to expect based on the management's comments so far. First, pretty unanimously, management teams are ruling out a V-shaped recovery and pointing more towards a gradual U-shaped recovery. 
And I don't think that surprises many people, but it's been a consistent message conveyed by management teams so far from the earnings results that we've seen for the first quarter. As it relates to demand, there are a few key comments that help frame up the environment as well. First, in late March, when Carnival was raising new funds, it noted that cruisers were still booking for in-year cruises. So that's booking for cruises later in 2020. I think that speaks to the resiliency of demand in that sector. Obviously, they've made uh, cancellation much, much more flexible. So it's not obvious that those cruises will actually happen, but it just shows the demand being there waiting. And so I think that's a good sign. And then uh, looking at the hotel sector, we've heard comments around group demand to saying things along the lines of uh, group demand has taken a hit in 2020, but it's been shifting into 2021. And so far, what management teams have seen is that there hasn't been a high level of cancellation rate for 2021. So while there's a disruption this year, it seems like there is a good amount of that business that is shifting to 2021. And in the out years, both for cruise and hotel, demand has been pretty resilient so far for next year. And I guess extending that outlook even further, you know, if we look at the global financial crisis, there's a few sort of fundamental changes to the competitive landscape. As we saw leisure customers come in and the traditional hoteliers had a challenged ability to attract those customers, they leaned increasingly on the online travel agencies because of their ability to speak directly to unaffiliated travelers. The hoteliers, the brand companies have struggled since then to obviously regain some of that market share that they conceded in that crisis. At this stage, do you have any thoughts about where that competitive landscape might change? It's interesting to think about who might be impacted more and who might gain market share. There's a couple ways that we've been thinking about it so far. So first, just to talk about that historical relationship that you mentioned, it is true that OTAs like Expedia and Booking were able to take market share from the big box hotel names like Marriott, Starwood at that time, and Hilton and Hyatt and such because of how leisure demand filled in a gap for lost group and corporate business. And to a degree, we expect that relationship to hold this time around as well. So when we shift from the pandemic phase into that recessionary phase, there's going to still be a discount mindset, we think, across the board, particularly for the leisure travel. So the OTA platform serves that market and is positioned to benefit from that mindset. And so long as group and corporate demand are, are challenged, then I think hotels will have to, again, use those platforms as a way to sell excess inventory. So I think the relationship will hold that OTAs will benefit early on in the recovery. There's another avenue as well where another competitive factor that's eaten into the market share for hotels, and that's the Airbnb and Verbo product that has done really well in the last decade. And it's interesting, there's a couple of philosophical questions around how travelers might consider an Airbnb or Verbo product post-pandemic. So there's a lot of third parties involved in that business model. And we think at the decision-making level, the pandemic's going to be so fresh in every traveler's mind that decisions are going to be based around cleanliness and, and other similar criteria. And it's not clear to us that a product like Airbnb would be able to verify their level of cleanliness at a standardized level as 
as well as a Marriott or a Hilton would. So that's one area that we're just watching. We don't have any view one way or another yet, but we were thinking about how individual travelers might be making their decisions with cleanliness in mind. And standardized product seems to lend itself more to the hotel model than it does a Verbo or an Airbnb. So that might be an area where uh, hotel companies might be able to get some market share back as we emerge from the pandemic. And I guess, have you had any thoughts about how we as individuals might think about travel? You know, coming after 9-11, there was an elevated sense is that there would just be a lot more telecommuting and uh, teleconferencing uh, with people because of the fears around travel. Ultimately, that didn't pan out. And whether that was because the technology wasn't there at the time or just that there was still a fairly large demographic of people that, that still did travel. You know, right now we're all sort of forced to understand the technology in a way and are probably finding it to be a little bit easier to use than we otherwise might have thought. You know, do you have any sense of whether or not we're just going to actually see the sort of the ceiling on the pace of growth in travel uh, being affected by this crisis? Yeah, again, this is sort of a philosophical question. We've certainly thought about it and the short answer is that in the near term, yes, is our answer to that question. But longer term, we think we revert back more towards what we saw before the pandemic. But the factors in the near term, I mean, you can have these conversations with your small sample sizes, I guess, even more small in quarantine times. But I think in the near term, what you're going to see is a slow expansion from the home base. So first on the personal level, you know, think about vacations, people might first look more towards driving destinations. Obviously, there are hotels that service that market as well. Uh, it might take a little longer to get towards the mindset where I'm going to fly to these destinations as I did before the pandemic. That's more for the leisure traveler. We do think ultimately we get back to the mindset that we had before the outbreak, though. It's just going to take a while. For the corporate level, I don't think anyone's going to want to rush to force travel at a level that was in place before the pandemic. However, as the fears dissipate and we move further away from the crisis, and certainly as vaccinations hopefully become available, that's going to alter the mindset as well. Vaccination, I think, will be one thing that make corporate travelers much more comfortable to revert back to previous activity. And we're optimistic that we get back to that point. So that's uh, a long-winded way of saying that in the near term, I think there's going to be disruption, but we don't expect that uh, scenario to stay in place over the long term. We do expect to return to some sense of normalcy, which was the type of activity we saw before the pandemic. Yeah, I think that the the environment that we're in right now also makes a fairly persuasive case that there is some pent up demand to finally see some people in the flesh, given how difficult it is to be sort of captive in our homes for extended time. So with that, Jim, you have a busy calendar of earnings and client questions. So I thank you for taking the time to share your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you're not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complaint in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.